We are continuing on with the book The Bitcoin Standard by Saif D. Namus. Today, we'll get into what the hell fiat currency is, what impact unsound money has on the moral state of a society, why a free market determined price is critical to a healthy economy, and why sound money is needed to maximize individual freedom. You found the Selfers Lab podcast. My name is David Hart. Government money. Fiat. The start of World War I represented the end of the monetary media being decided by the free market and the beginning of the era of government money. From this period on, the government decisions and policy would dictate the monetary reality more than individual choice. Government-issued money is also known as fiat currency, coming from the Latin word fiat for decree, order or authorization. We'll use the terms fiat and government money interchangeably, but they mean the same thing. On the gold standard, the government was responsible for minting the gold and issuing notes that were redeemable in gold. The government could not substantially increase the supply of gold. When the decision was made to suspend the gold standard and instead use fiat money that was not redeemable for gold, this allowed the government to increase the supply of money easily and arbitrarily. No fiat money has come into circulation without first being redeemable for gold or silver. Only through redeemability into saleable forms of money did fiat gain its saleability. Only through holding gold in their reserves could governments get people to initially accept their fiat currency. Government money is similar to the primitive forms of money in that it is liable to having its supply increase quickly compared to its stock, leading to the destruction of wealth and collapse as a monetary media. When looking at different national currencies, you find the most widely held and accepted currencies have a lower annual increase in their supply. Monetary nationalism and the death of the gold standard. The major difference between World War I and previous limited wars was monetary. Within weeks of the war starting, all major players went off the gold standard, suspending their citizens' rights to redeem their paper money for gold. War efforts were now no longer limited to a government's gold reserves, but extended to the wealth of the entire population. As long as the government could keep printing more money and having it accepted, the war could continue. If governments were forced to fund the war via taxation, as was previously required on the gold standard, the war may have been over in a couple of months based on the duration of other wars fought during the gold standard. Citizens would have been reluctant to part with their wealth to continue funding the government's war. With the suspension of the gold standard, the government did not face this limitation anymore and could fight the war until it had eradicated people's wealth through inflation and the currency was no longer accepted for payment. The war was to continue on for four gruelling years, resulting in the deaths of millions and the destruction of the wealth of all major countries involved. In 1918, Germany started having a serious decline in the value of their currency, making their defeat inevitable. Germany's currency value declined by the end of the war to 51% of its pre-war value. The United States, in comparison, was only at 96% of its pre-war value. 
At the end of the war, countries were faced with the decision as to whether to return to the gold standard. A fair valuation would be a devastating admission as to how much value the currency had lost. Trying to peg it to the pre-war value would result in everyone converting any currency held for gold. This resulted in, as Hayek called it, monetary nationalism, in which money was taken away from the free market and turned into a politically controlled economic decision where the government determined the value, supply and interest rate for money. Never again would gold return to being the world's homogenous currency. The government would restrict the movement of gold and force people to use their government-issued fiat money. interwar era. In 1922, the Treaty of Genoa was signed. This was an attempt to have the US dollar and British pound considered reserve currencies, similar to gold. These countries wanted the ability to inflate their currencies while maintaining a stable price in terms of gold. This did not work and gold continued to flow out of Britain and the US. Britain would go on to put pressure on their French, German and American counterparts to increase their money supply, devaluing all currencies to try and stem the flow of gold away from Britain. France and Germany resisted, but the US did respond. This stemmed some of the flow, but created a bubble in stock and housing markets, resulting in an economic crash and subsequent depression as a result of suspending the inflationary policy in 1928. Dollars, wages and prices were all overvalued and central planners paralysed the economy by instituting price and wage controls, further delaying the economic recovery. Rather than acknowledging the problem was their unsound monetary approach, they blamed the gold standard. President Roosevelt banned the private ownership of gold and then revalued the dollar on the international market, resulting in a 41% devaluation of the dollar in real terms. Despite never having studied economics, John Maynard Keynes had managed to bend the ear of the governments, ignoring centuries of hard-earned economic theory in favour of a centrally planned economy. His theory was that the overall health of the economy was determined by the aggregate spending level. All problems were a shortage of spending. His solution was to increase the money supply and the level of government spending. The theory was that saving reduced spending so that government was to discourage saving. Keynesian economics took over the Western world. Universities effectively lost their independence as they were now reliant on government funding and were incentivized to push the Keynesian view that supported government control of the money supply. Economics stopped being the study of humans' choices under scarcity to improve individuals' conditions. Government management of the economy became the unquestioned reality. On the international gold standard, money flowed easily between nations because it was all convertible for gold, so it was easy to determine relative value. Now with no standard of value, currency manipulation became a tool of trade, with countries devaluing their currency to give their exporters an advantage. Trade barriers were erected to combat currency manipulation. What was once an easy flow of economic trade between nations now became inefficient and difficult, with nations blaming other nations for their economic woes. World War II and Bretton Woods. 
The war machines of government-directed economies were devastating in their effectiveness due to the absurd Keynesian concept that increased government spending would aid the economy. For Keynesian economists, the war was what caused the economic recovery. Yes, spending and employment were high, but the truth is there were many restrictions at home due to the output required for the war. Rationing, price controls and the banning of new house builds to name a few. Hardly the economic boom that it appeared on paper. If the Keynesian economists had been correct in their theory of spending determining the state of the economy, it should have been disastrous for the economy with the conclusion of the war and a reduction in government spending in the US by 75%. Instead, there was a boom and the economy experienced growth and recovery. The US and representatives of her allies met at Bretton Woods in New Hampshire in 1944 to attempt to define a new era for the global financial system. US dollars would be used as the global reserve currency by other central banks. Other currencies would be convertible to US dollars at a fixed exchange rate. US dollars would be convertible to gold. To make this system work, the United States would take gold from other countries' banks. The International Monetary Fund, IMF, was established to manage exchange rates and financial flows between countries. No such intermediary was required on the gold standard because everything was set to the value of gold. Floating currencies gave the world economy imbalances that had to be continuously managed. The IMF has the impossible task of trying to achieve some sort of equilibrium. This new financial order put the United States in the extraordinary position where, due to their dollar being used as the reserve currency of the world, they could buy whatever they wanted and finance it by inflating the currency the rest of the world used. By 1968, countries were starting to demand gold in exchange for the dollars they held, due to the dropping value of the dollar as a result of years of expansionary monetary policy by the US government. In 1971, all pretense was dropped and President Nixon ended the convertibility of the US dollar to gold. The United States was now able to expand the US dollar even further. These actions have led us to the fluctuating currencies that we have now that resemble a system of partial barter a system that is startling in its level of inefficiency compared to the gold standard with trillions of dollars every day changing hands on the foreign exchange market. The problem with fiat money is its hardness is dependent on the government's ability to resist the temptation to inflate it. There are no physical, economic or natural constraints to stop them. History has shown that no government has been able to resist this temptation. So why does fiat continue? The government demands taxes are paid in fiat. The government regulates the banking sector and legal tender laws imposed by the government dictate what can be used as legal tender. Despite all of the attempts by government, gold has still not lost its monetary role, as evidenced by the fact that all government central banks still hoard as much gold as they can get their hands on. Sound money is what the market freely chooses to be money and is under complete control of the owner. The 20th century, with all its wars and economic crises, was the century of unsound money. As Frederick Hayek put it, I don't believe we shall ever have a good money again before we take the thing out of the hands of the government. That is, we can't take it violently out of the hands of the government. All we can do is by some sly roundabout way introduce something that they can't stop. 
As we will see, Bitcoin is the technology that appears set to take monetary control back from the government. Money and time preference. So why is sound money so important? There are three main reasons why sound money is so important. Sound money protects value across time, allowing individuals to plan for the future, lowering their time preference. Sound money allows trade based on a stable unit of measure, the development of larger markets free from government control, and allows for reliable economic calculations. Sound money enables freedom from repression as the state's ability to print money gives them an obscene level of power over their citizens. The soundness of money used in a society will determine an individual's time preference. Time preference is the ratio at which people value the present compared to the future. Time preference is always positive as we will always discount the future compared to the present. Animal time preference is far higher than humans as they satisfy their immediate needs without consideration for the future. As we were able to reduce our time preference, this enabled us to plan and carry out tasks over longer time periods to satisfy remote needs. We can plan to create goods that will aid in the production of future goods. If the producer can lower their time preference and invest in the future, this will raise their productivity in the long term. Consider the example of hunting. If you were to continue to chase animals trying to smash their brains out with a rock, you would be continually engaged in the act of hunting to satiate your metabolic needs, and occasionally you would starve. But if a successful hunter puts time into developing a sharper rock, and then a bow and arrow, and so forth, this investment of time enables the hunter to be far more effective at feeding their family into the future. This then allows for the support of larger families, more people participating in the hunt, specialisation in the group and further technological developments to increase productivity in the future. Once time preference drops sufficiently to allow for savings and the production of capital goods, such as the bow and arrow, the process of civilization starts. Every day the individual will engage in economic transactions with their future self. They gain the benefits and the costs from these decisions. A person's outcome in life is largely determined by their time preference. So what determines an individual's time preference? Number one, security of the individual and their property. Number two, tax rates. And number three, expected future value of money. In a free market, people will choose the money that is most likely to hold its value over time. The better it holds its value, the more likely people will delay consumption. This will result in investment in capital and an improvement in the standard of living. Societies become more peaceful and cooperative as this is more beneficial to future economic relations. Moral choices are made for best long-term outcome. If the money is losing value, society saves less, consumes its capital, productivity drops and real wages decline. People become more present-focused, defined by their moral failings and engagement in self-destructive behavioural patterns. This can be observed through the flourishing of society under sound money in the 19th century and the horrors observed under unsound money in the 20th century. Monetary inflation. 
The more a monetary medium can resist expansion, the better it is as a medium of exchange and store of value. It doesn't matter how much money there is in supply, what matters is its purchasing power. Theoretically, an ideal money would have a fixed supply, meaning nobody could make more of it. The only way to get more would be to work for it with everyone working to produce something of value that people are willing to exchange money for. Previously, this had been impossible to consider as anything chosen as a monetary medium would be open to the possibility of people producing more of it. The closest thing we had was gold as it was almost indestructible so we still have almost everything that has ever been mined meaning any additions to the stockpile of gold are very small compared to the whole. When new supply is very low, market value for money is determined by the willingness of people to hold money and their desire to spend it. Money is the market good with the least diminishing marginal utility, meaning each additional unit acquired does not significantly reduce the utility of the ones already held. Once you have several houses or cars, there is a diminished desire to own more. Not so with money. A slowly declining marginal utility combined with a constant supply should result in a stable market value for money. It should be a boring investment that basically does nothing. An investment is reward for taking risk. Money should have the least risk and no reward. Demand for money will likely vary only with time preference. A lower time preference means money will increase in value compared to other goods and services as people choose to hold for the future. These features explain why gold has held its purchasing power relatively consistently over so many centuries. Hard money has an inelastic supply with societal demand, varying little as time preference varies. Easy money has an elastic supply with societal demand, varying wildly because of producers' ability to make more monetary units easily. If a good is to have monetary status, it is critical that the price for the good is relatively stable so that it can be used as a unit of account. Savings, capital accumulation, and the destruction of the family unit. Time preference is always positive. Given the choice between the same good now or in the future, every sane person would prefer to have the good now. Only by increasing the return later will people delay gratification and lower their time preference. When it comes to investing with unsound money, the return needs to beat the rate of depreciation, so investments target higher returns but attract higher risk. Additionally, as the money supply expands, interest rates are set very low, further reducing the desire to save. As saving rates under unsound money in the Western world have plummeted, debt has skyrocketed. The 20th century was defined by conspicuous consumption, the destruction of money and high time preference thinking. It was the opposite of capital accumulation, which is the defining feature of capitalism. Stating the bleedingly obvious here, debt is the opposite of savings. Where savings allows for capital accumulation and the advancement of society, debt reduces capital stock and results in a decline in living standards. The current generation may be the first since the decline of the Roman Empire to have less capital than the previous generation. No matter how prudent a person is under unsound money, their savings will still witness a decrease in value and they will have to pay taxes to cover the government spending. With the reduction of capital accumulation comes the reduction of capital transfer within families. This has weakened the family unit and made children reliant on the government's unlimited funds. 
As the government also promises people welfare and retirement benefits, investing in children seems less valuable since you can apparently rely on the government to look after you when you are infirm. Therefore, less families are started and more marriages are broken. Unsound fiat money reduces the incentive for all family members to invest in long-term relationships, resulting in the breakdown of the family unit. Innovations and Artistic Flourishing It is no coincidence that most of our modern lives are defined by technology that was first invented under the gold standard. Running water, plumbing, heating, electricity, the internal combustion engine, mass production, car, plane, subway, electric elevator, surgery, petroleum-derived chemicals, stainless steel, telephone, wireless telegraphy, voice recordings, colour photography and movies were all invented in one form or another under the gold standard. Investments under sound money could take time to pay off. These innovations were what is known as zero to one inventions. There was nothing like it prior to the invention coming into existence. Most of the innovations that have come under unsound money can be defined as one to many, meaning they are refinements and developments of the breakthrough technology invented under the gold standard. The impact of unsound money can also be seen in the art world. Prior to the 20th century, art was financed by wealthy patrons with sound money. They had the patience to wait decades for a masterpiece that would last centuries. This demonstrated an extremely low time preference. This low time preference allowed artists to spend years honing their skills to a level of mastery. As government money replaced sound money, patrons with low time preference and refined taste were replaced with government bureaucrats exhibiting crude artistic taste. Being an artist now, in the era of unsound money, is defined by your ability to generate low quality, low skill art that takes a fraction of time. Beauty and longevity of the work no longer matter. The government controls the majority of funding, replacing the free market of artists and patrons with the government dictating the direction of art. This goes a long way to explaining the horrific nature of the quickly produced, lazy and talentless modern art movement. Capitalism's information system. Having a unit of account is important so that economic transactions have a fixed frame of reference with which to calculate value. To make economic decisions, you must allocate resources, but you can never have complete knowledge regarding conditions of production, availability, and preference of other individuals. In a free market, prices are knowledge, carrying the distillation of all market conditions into an actionable variable for the individual. The individual will make decisions based on this price, which will then feed back and impact the price. All relevant economic information is built into the price. If the price is artificially set by a central governing body, price loses all meaning. The price setter could never have all of the dispersed distributed knowledge that goes into determination of a price in the free market. Restricting price movement breaks down economic activity, pushing us back towards a primitive state of economic trade. Prices determined on the free market allow for trade and specialisation. Producers can specialise in areas where they have a comparative advantage, and only with accurate prices denominated in a common medium of exchange can people figure out where this advantage lies.
The importance of the price mechanism. Few understand the importance of the price mechanism in capital accumulation and allocation. The fatal flaw of socialism was that with no free market price mechanism, economic calculation was impossible and the capital would be wastefully and destructively allocated. The government owns the means of capital production, making it the sole buyer and seller of capital goods in the economy. Without a market where people can bid for capital, there can be no price, so there is no rational way to determine the most productive use of capital, nor any way to figure out how much to produce. It becomes impossible to coordinate the production of the capital goods for factories to function. Scarcity is the starting point for understanding economics and preferences, opportunity costs and trade-offs. The central planner can have no knowledge of this without market-based price signals. Without a market-determined price, the economy cannot accommodate change or tolerate entrepreneurship. In a free market environment, all capital decisions are based on price. What we see the world over today is not a free market. Capital markets in the modern economy consist of markets for loanable funds. If it were a free market, interest rates would be set by market demand. If interest rates increased, people would save, and then those savings could be offered to businesses for capital investment. In the modern economy, however, the central bank sets the interest rate, centrally plans, and determines the amount of loanable funds. Banks create money whenever they engage in lending due to fractional reserve banking. A drop in interest rates encourages lending and expansion of the money supply. An increase reduces lending and results in slowing down of the expansion of the money supply. Booms, busts and financial crises. In our modern economies, a committee of economists determine the amount of loanable funds and they are under the influence of politicians, bankers and, in extreme cases, the military. The dangers of price controls have been witnessed over and over again. Setting the price for a good will result in either shortage or surplus with large losses. In a free market with sound money, consumption needs to be deferred to save. Loanable funds exactly match what has been saved. The opportunity cost is immediate consumption. The interest rate is the price that regulates this relationship. The modern economy completely ignores this trade-off. The central bank generally wants to promote economic activity so they artificially make interest rates low to drive borrowing and increase consumption. Without enough consumption deferred, there will not be enough capital goods produced to satisfy demand. This results in the distortion of pricing and the devaluing of the money supply. More and more producers bid for the limited capital goods, driving up prices. The manipulation is exposed at this point, with some capital investments all of a sudden becoming unprofitable. These are known as malinvestments or wasted capital. Manipulation of the interest rate leads to miscalculation of the investment. Recessions are the inevitable outcome of interest rate manipulation. The easier it is for a central bank to manipulate interest rates, the more extreme the business cycles and recessions. This is the cause of the boom and bust cycles that are now seen as a normal part of market economies. And once they start on the path of inflating the money supply, there is no escaping the inevitable recession. In the words of Friedrich Hayek, We now have a tiger by the tail. How long can this inflation continue? If the tiger of inflation is freed, he will eat us up. Yet if he runs faster and faster, while we desperately hold on, we are still finished. I'm glad I won't be here to see the final outcome. 
Only when the interest rate and money supply are manipulated does it cause widespread and large-scale failures due to malinvestments that result in massive unemployment as certain skills are not quickly and easily transferred into other industries. Sound money and individual freedom. Governments believe that when there is a choice between an unpopular tax and a very popular expenditure, there is a way out for them, the way toward inflation. This illustrates the problem of going away from the gold standard. Ludwig von Mises. Under sound money, the government had to be financially responsible. The government is restrained in scope to protecting borders, individual freedoms and private property. Now that we operate under unsound money, we have a government that is far-reaching, limiting our freedoms and devaluing our savings. So let's ask the question that should have been debated in the public square a century ago. Do we need the government to manage the money supply? Should government manage the money supply? The starting assumption for all mainstream economics is that the government needs to manage the money supply, and yet every attempt by a government to do so has ended in economic disaster. It is the problem masquerading as the solution. Gold functioned as money for thousands of years before nation-states existed. Now Bitcoin has gained monetary status and has a total value exceeding most state-based currencies in spite of no authority mandating its use as money. There are two main schools of economic thought that back government management of the monetary medium, Keynesians and monetarists. Both are encouraged through government funding to continue to produce research that indicates the government should control the money. Keynes believed that the state of the economy was only determined by the total level of spending. No thought was put into considering what actually impacted spending. It was just deemed that if spending was too high, there would be inflation. If it was too low, there would be unemployment. To address this, the government just had to control how much was being spent through money creation, government spending and the setting of interest rates. If this were the case, then it should be impossible to find examples when there was both high inflation and high unemployment, but this is exactly what was seen in the 1970s in the United States. The mainstream alternative to Keynesian economics, monetarism, suggests a slightly reduced role of government, letting individuals have more freedom but ultimately still expecting the government to manage the money supply to prevent a collapse or decline of the price level. Their belief is if deflation were to occur, people would hoard their money, reduce spending, increase unemployment and cause a recession. The central tenet of both of these schools of thought is to have a central bank constantly expanding the money supply to encourage people to spend more because their money is losing value and thus keep unemployment low. In contrast to this is the classical tradition of economics, now commonly referred to as the Austrian school. It is focused on the understanding of phenomena in a causal manner and logically deducing implications from demonstrably true axioms. It posits money emerges on the free market as the most saleable asset across space and time. The quantity of the money available in an economy is irrelevant because as long as it is sufficiently divisible, it is only purchasing power that matters. If the money supply is fixed, economic growth would cause prices to decrease. People would develop a low time preference, deferring consumption and investing more, ultimately consuming more than the high time preference society. 
In an economy where the currency is increasing in value, investments would only be made in projects that offered a positive real return over the rate of appreciation. There would not be malinvestments. People would not be investing in unprofitable projects that only appear profitable during periods of inflation and artificially low interest rates. This is why gold has been traditionally the preferred money of Austrian economists, and is also evidence of the inferiority of fiat, as gold needed to be banned and payment in fiat mandated by law. Fiat currency could never compete on the free market with gold. Unsound money and perpetual war. There are three fundamental reasons why unsound money enables a state of perpetual war. Number one, unsound money is a barrier to trade between countries, distorting value and making trade political, creating friction between populations. Number two, unsound money allows governments to continue fighting until the value of the currency is completely destroyed. Sound money would restrain this, as they can only spend what they have in reserve and what they can tax. And number three, unsound money drives higher time preferences, resulting in people being more focused on short-term conflict rather than longer-term cooperation. Societies with sound money are more focused on investing for the future and cooperation, resulting in less conflict and violence. Limited versus Omnipotent Government Sound money results in a limited government. It enforces a measure of honesty and transparency as any new proposal has to be funded by taxes. Unsound money allows governments to buy allegiance and popularity through granting whatever wishes the public demands with no consideration for the future costs. They can simply increase the money supply and the true cost will not be felt until the inflation hits years later. Unsound money was a bonanza for all the tyrants of the 20th century. All the big names... Hitler, Stalin, Mao and Mussolini all ruled during unsound government-issued money. They were able to execute their horrific vision of society due to having access to the wealth of an entire economy. Unsound money makes government power almost unlimited. Zombies with no skin in the game. Credit creation by central banks create unsustainable booms by allowing unprofitable projects to stay alive and continue consuming resources on unproductive activities. The unproductive businesses are essentially zombies with no skin in the game, surviving on the largesse of the government. Had these businesses been productive, free individuals would have parted with their money to buy their products. These firms become focused on getting access to government funding rather than addressing their customers' needs. This explains the existence of large government departments that exist completely detached from economic reality. It has also fundamentally corrupted academia, where government is the primary funder, driving research that aligns with government priorities. There is no free market of ideas when the funding comes from a single source. Another issue with unsound money is maturity mismatch in the banking sector. Fractional reserve banking is a subset of this, which basically refers to lending out more than you've taken deposits for. This leaves banks exposed to a run on the bank, resulting in a liquidity crisis. 
The only way to make this work is by using a lender of last resort, a central bank able to bail out the banks by creating new money supply to support the bank's liquidity. Knowing that they have a central bank to bail them out, they are able to generate returns without risk and create risk without returns for everyone else. As a result, they enjoy the privilege of the highest profits in the private sector with the protection of the public sector. They take all of the gains and socialise the losses. The solution to these pathologies is the reinstatement of sound money, which is where we are finally ready for Bitcoin to enter the discussion. So what did we learn about the history and function of money? Fiat currency is government-issued money that is forced upon a population. It is not freely chosen on the market for its monetary properties. Going off the gold standard allowed governments to inflate their money supply and fight wars until their currency collapsed, resulting in the largest and deadliest wars in human history. Governments around the world have continued to expand fiat, rapidly devaluing any savings that an individual may hold. Sound money is essential to an advanced society as it protects value across time, allows trade based on a stable unit of measure, and enables freedom from repression. The government's manipulation of the money supply leads to individuals having a high time preference. You are forced to consume now as any value you've stored will be rapidly eaten away. The knock-on effects are a government that is a wish granter that destroys the value of capital, reducing capital held by families, which increases individuals' reliance on government services and destroying their ability to plan for children and their own future. Easy money makes crap art. Booms and busts are the direct cause of the unsound monetary policy of governments. Unsound money allows governments to be omnipotent. Sound money restricts the size of governments. You now know what government fiat is and its devastating impact on a population. You may be thinking there is no hope, and your best bet is to invest your quickly deteriorating savings into a government-subsidised zombie company. Well, don't jump yet. Bitcoin is the escape hatch from the hell we've just observed. Next post will lay out the case for why Bitcoin is the hardest money ever created. If you've enjoyed this so far, go get the book. Read it and share it with your friends. Remember, this is just a sketch, a collection of notes I use to more fully embed the knowledge from a book that I have read. The real gold, or Bitcoin in this case, is in the actual book. Use these posts as a way to learn new chunks of knowledge quickly and send nuggets of wisdom to those lazy-ass friends that you have who cannot commit to reading a whole book. If you've got any questions on this book or suggestions for any books you'd like to see notes on, hit me up on Twitter at TheDavidHart. To read the writing behind this podcast, subscribe on Substack. Connect with me on Twitter. If you think this is worth anything, consider supporting me on Patreon. Thanks for listening. Thank you.